0: Peace, we Welcome back to the Alcos Mainstream Podcast. Today, we bring on one of the world's largest pre-seed investors to cover what the state of early-stage investing looks like. We welcome Mel Gavette, the CEO of Techstars, the leading accelerator in global investment business into early-stage startups. Mel has taken a background where she's been a CEO, COO, and operator at the likes of Priceline and Compass to run Techstars as they continue to transform their business. Techstars has invested in over 3,700 early-stage startups that have collectively achieved over $98 billion in all-time accelerator portfolio market capitalization. With a global reach and early-stage perspective across ecosystems and sectors, Mail was in a great position to share views on what makes a great founder. Why, despite even more seed funds than ever, there's been an increase in applications to Techstars by over 2.5 times. Why Techstars can be seen as the ultimate fund of funds and why an actively managed index of early-stage innovation can make sense for many investment allocators. Thanks, Mail, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your wisdom and perspectives on early-stage investing. Mail, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Great to see you again. When we last sat on stage in Europe a few months ago, the market was still kind of digesting what was happening with the state of seed and everything. At Techstars, you obviously see things globally, see different regions, different stages of companies, et cetera. What does the seed market look like right now?
1: In short, strong demand and less supply. Techstars is investing in more startup than ever this year. In 2023, we'll probably make over 700 pre-seed investments. Our applications have increased by 250% in 2023 compared to last year. So plenty, plenty of founders. At the same time, and I'm sure that's not going to be a surprise for you to hear me say that, the seed funding ecosystem has cooled dramatically, with the exception of a couple of sectors, artificial intelligence and climate tech. What's interesting is that the early stage companies stayed relatively immune from the market turmoil, at least in terms of valuation. And even the number of deals being made has remained relatively stable. I mean, a little down, but nothing compared to what happened at later stage, in particular growth stage. And that was the case really until the second quarter of 2023, especially compared to growth stage companies as I've just mentioned. So Generally, we're seeing a pullback on valuations and seed-stage companies are finding it harder to advance to a Series A round, but there's still a lot of activity at the pre-seed level and both on the demand side and on the deal side.
0: Something you said in there is fascinating, which is at a time when there are more seed funds and more dollars as a whole in the venture ecosystem, maybe it's not being deployed, but you also said that you're seeing applications, 2.5 X increase from before. So what do you make of those data points taken together that there are more seed funds and yet there are more applications to an accelerator?
1: I think the the seed is what comes after the accelerator. The accelerator is often, there are obviously always exceptions, but the accelerator is often the deal flow to the seed investors. We work with a lot of founders who, at least at the moment when they come to us, they are not VC-backable. It doesn't mean that they're not VC-backable at all. It means that when they come to us, what they have is not going to be attracting venture capital money for plenty of reasons. You can, there is more VC at the seed and A, B stage than ever before. But at the same time, they're pretty conservative in the deals that they're making. A lot of them find themselves incapable of raising their next fund. The industry has been talking a great deal about dry powder. The reality is that that dry powder is probably not as significant and as available as the industry has been talking about. So that's on the the funding side. Yes, there's more and more entrepreneur, mostly because uh, there's a lot of tech people who have unfortunately lost their job in 2022 and 2023. I think we're talking about well over 200,000 people in 2023 alone, and a portion of them had been thinking about becoming an entrepreneur for a really long time. They just didn't really have an incentive to do that because they had such comfortable working condition and such attractive compensation package. That changed dramatically when the series of layoffs happened. So now you're seeing a new generation of entrepreneurs coming with an in-depth knowledge of the tech industry, great experience, ideas that they've been sitting on for years and also a wave of innovation, whether it's artificial intelligence or blockchain or nanotechnology. You combine all of that together, and you find yourself in a really interesting moment for pre-seed. And at the same time, even though there's never been more seed investor than ever, it the, the matching between the company that went through pre-seed and the seed investor is still a challenge.
0: What do you find are the most likely? indicators of success for you say many of these founders and companies may not yet be ready for VC funding, but they come to Techstars. There's clearly something there that the managing directors and the team are seeing. What is it that ends up generally being the indicator for likelihood of success through the Techstars program and then going on to become a successful company like you've had many in the past?
1: We're really looking at four primary characteristic when we think about the founder because at the pre-seed level really what you're assessing is the quality of the founder and their team much more than the id because they're most likely going to pivot during the accelerator program actually most of them do pivot we look first at the founder when we look at the founder we look generally speaking at four characteristics. are they resilient because they're gonna fall on their face about a hundred times during the entrepreneurial journey. And the one who are gonna make it to the other side are the one who are gonna get up 101 time. So resilience is very, very important. And you can take that from a former founder, I built three companies, and it is a very long and very painful journey, even though it's also a very happy and exhilarating journey, but the struggle is real. The number two quality that we are looking at is what I would call intellectual curiosity slash desire to learn. These are founders who never stop to learn, who are always hungry to learn something new, who are always eager to see how they can make their business better and what is the thing that they've missed in their industry or the the customer inside that they had no idea about. There's this intellectual curiosity that is relentless and that's absolutely critical to be a good entrepreneur. The third characteristic that we look at is their ability to create followership. And what we mean by that is their ability to attract talent. Because you do not build a startup on your own. No one succeeds alone. You're going to need to recruit people. And it does not mean that you have to be an extrovert. Some of the most Successful founders are complete introverts, whose energy is entirely depleted when they are spending time with more than one person at a time. But there is something about them, there is something about the the successful founder that makes them a little bit magnetic. And what I mean is they have a vision, they have a story, they have a technical knowledge, have something. and, And by the way, it varies from one founder to another. They have something that makes people, not everyone, but that makes a lot of people stop and be like, oh, I want to work with that guy or that gal. It's gender neutral. I want to work with that person and I am going to go and accept a, a lower compensation package than if I was working for a legacy company and I'm going to go and sign for long hours And I'm gonna go inside for something risky because the company may or may not make it because I believe that person, I believe that founder is someone I really, really wanna work with. So that's the third piece. And then the fourth piece that we look at is a passion for a problem, a passion for the customer. It does not mean that you know everything, but it means that you are, again, to use a word that I used before, relentless on trying to satisfy the need of a certain customer that you are relentless in addressing a problem that you you have identified. These are the four key characteristics for us.
0: Does that vary based on the type of program that you're running? Because I think this gets into the, the evolution of Techstars as a firm. You obviously have various types of accelerator programs, whether they're geographic specific, whether they're industry specific. Do those kinds of things vary based on those characteristics?
1: So the characteristics that I describe are pretty universal. And it's not to say that there's not combination, different mix and match between these four characteristics. There are clearly founders who are super strong on the passion for the customer and the problem and have to work on their ability to attract the right talent. I'm I'm not saying you have to hit a hundred percent on every single one of them, but it is a pretty good indicator of your chances of success. When we look at specific industry, there is some variation. It does help if you are building AI-centered business To have some kind of AI background, it's going to be a lot harder for you to build an AI-centered business. And I use the word centered on purpose because you can have an AI-powered business or have an AI-centered business. They're very, very different. AI-powered business is basically these days pretty much any startup that you can think of. At some point, they're going to integrate that technology to get their business to the next level. But when you think about AI-centered, these are businesses for whom the the core technology and the core of what they're doing is basically developing some form of, of artificial intelligence. And in that case, yeah, if you don't have a background in AI, that may be a little complicated for you to do much. Something around cybersecurity, something around biotechnologies. There's a certain number of vertical where you gotta have some uh, hard skills, hard experience around that specific domain. But there are plenty of others where, frankly, it's not so much about a technical skill and more about your deep understanding of the problem that you're trying to solve. And then your relentless and your curiosity and your ability to recruit the people who have the skills that are going to help you solve that problem.
0: What's fascinating about this is maybe unlike some other accelerator models, Techstars is to some extent a decentralized model in the sense that Each program is run by their own managing director under the Techstars brand. And obviously they interface with you all in the leadership team, but it may be a little bit different than one team picking all the applicants, evaluating them all together. So how does that impact things?
1: We are very much one company, one team. We have funds that deploy across multiple programs and we have a pretty clear strategy about the portfolio that we are trying to build. I would more describe it as a hybrid model where we have a pretty strong investment thesis globally as a firm in terms of what is a great founder, what type of portfolio we are trying to construct, what's the selection process. There's a general funnel of conversion. And at the same time, you're absolutely right, we do have... People on the ground, that's a key differentiator of Techstars. We have very small classes. If you join Techstars, when we invest in you, you're going to join a class that's going to have between 10 and 15 other companies. It's going to be on the ground. We have programs in Silicon Valley, but we also have programs in... New York and Boston and Seattle and Atlanta and Paris and Berlin. And that's always a good test. I I always end up forgetting some. And in the UAE and in Africa, we're very distributed that way. What we feel it allows us to do is to be very connected to the local community, attract founders who may not be able to come to Silicon Valley for many, many reasons, yet which are very very good founder, the relentless, curious founders that I've mentioned before. And our managing directors, the team on the ground, are basically providing that extra point of contact where we can talk to the founder, explain to them the value proposition of texters, and really be with them on the ground, working with them in their own ecosystem. So it's really, really a hybrid model.
0: That's fascinating when you think about how to construct a business model And that's what I want to dive into a little bit more is Techstars as a business. You're this multi-pronged accelerator and also an investment fund. Walk us through that evolution.
1: Our purpose at at Techstars has always been to democratize access to capital for tech entrepreneurs and startups. When the the three co-founders built Techstars, that was at the core of what they wanted to do. However, our business was not originally purpose-built or structured for scale. Instead, it was really built to grow organically to support local entrepreneurial ecosystem. Uh, Textor, one of, of Texter's co-founder, Brad Feld, basically created the playbook for creating startup ecosystem in your community. There's a book that I strongly recommend that he wrote that basically Describe to you what you should be doing if, in a specific region, specific city, you want to build uh, a startup community. That's really how it started. What happened over time is that to fulfill our purpose, aka democratize access to capital for tech entrepreneurs and startup, we have step by step set out to invest in an unprecedented number of startups per year. We have worked on enabling more capital to flow to entrepreneurs around the world. And we Acknowledge and own the fact that we are now the largest early stage investor in the world. That's what we are focusing on for both the entrepreneurs that we back, but also the LPs uh, that give us money that invest money in our fund. With this idea that we are delivering the best compounding returns uh, to them. This is, this is the Texas north star. Fundamentally, we are an investment company. Everything we do. Is deliberately and purposefully focused on delivering great returns because we believe that this is the best way to make both LPs but also founders happy because founders are going to spend 10 years of their life building that business and they deserve to have generational wealth created. So we're here to deliver great return to everybody involved and make sure that there is more capital flowing through the entire globe. Accelerators are just a way to get there. When you do pre seed investment, the reality is there's going to be so many pivots. So many changes, so many unseen challenges for the founders that you back, that you have no idea who is going to be successful and who is not. You have signs, as we discussed, like there are four characteristics. If you don't have them, it is going to be incredibly hard for you to be a successful entrepreneur. But... If you have these four characteristics, does it guarantee that you're going to be a successful entrepreneur? Absolutely not. Anyone who tells you that at the pre-seed level, they know how to pick the winners, I'm not sure they're being very realistic. For us, building the accelerator was just a way to increase the odds of the investments being successful. In other words, if you give a check to to pre-seed entrepreneurs and just say to them, all right, see you in five years, or see you even in 12 months, the chance of them being successful are significantly less than if you say, hey, here's a check. And by the way, there is this boot camp. It's an entrepreneurial boot camp. It's like MBA on steroids for entrepreneurs, and for three months, we are going to be next to you in the trenches, holding your hands, making sure, making sure that you sleep and eat and providing you with all the tools that you need to have in your toolbox to be successful. And we're going to care about you very, very much because our classes are small. It's again, 10 to 15 entrepreneurs. We are going to be next to you probably even more than you wish. Then suddenly you increase their, the chances of success. Then if you add on top of that, that at the end of that bootcamp, we're like that's not over it was awesome to spend 13 weeks with you but there is three and a half thousand mentors waiting for you. There's 8,000 alumni waiting for you out there. There is a big platform to connect you with the entire Textures network. We have negotiated for you perks with some of the biggest name in the market, whether it's cloud services or HR information system or accounting firm. And we have selected the best. We have negotiated the best terms with them. Here it is let's save some money and some time for you. Oh, and by the way, if you need a new person in your team, we have contact, we can help you hire them. Oh, and by the way, if you're looking for potential customers, we partner with some of the biggest name in every vertical. Like we are one of the largest investors in space and defense. We have a partnership with NASA. We are very active in e-commerce. We have a partnership with eBay. We've done a lot of investment in um, autonomous vehicle. Uh, We have a partnership with Audi, et cetera, et cetera. I can give you names over and over again. It's a very long way to say when we are an investor, we look at the accelerator as a way to increase your chances of success as an entrepreneur beyond just the check that we're giving you. And then it doesn't stop here because we think that the accelerator is only one piece of the the puzzle to get you to where you want to be, which is successful. And so we also provide what we call portfolio services, which is what comes after. And that's the Texter's formula as an investor. It's capital plus program and services, plus a community that is behind you to support you when you need it the most.
0: There's something in there that you said that was fascinating, which is that from an investment perspective, you feel that at pre-seed, this is the best way to approach this strategy from an investment returns perspective. I bring that up because I recently had Pejman Nozad from Pear on the podcast. And what was fascinating about that conversation was they just raised their largest fund. They had many institutional LPs come into their fund. And what the institutional LPs said to them was that they view pre-seed and seed as its own strategy now, and you need to have an allocation as an LP to that. I'd love to hear your perspective on that comment and why... From the data that you've seen, this type of strategy that you've employed at Techstars is the best way to generate the best risk-adjusted returns at precedency?
1: I think there's a a few questions in in your questions. I think the first question is, what makes precedency different from the rest of the investment stages? And the, the biggest difference, if I overly simplify it, is... At Pre-Seed Seed, the companies that you are going to back have limited to zero traction. Most of the time, it's an idea and it's an MVP, but they may not have monetized. They may have some customers, but that will anyway be a very small number. A lot of what you assess when you do Pre-Seed, back to my earlier comment, is the quality of the founder the quality of the team, the the deep knowledge of the market, less than, hey, have you found the exact right solution? Because there's not enough numbers on the table for you to know whether or not this is yet the right idea. It may sound like a genius idea, and then the implement, and then you're like, yep, that was not working. There is zero traction in the market. The customers are not interested. The price point is wrong. The technology is not as advanced as you thought it was to make that happen. Or the exact opposite, which is that sounded like a good idea in a big market. And then you just suddenly realize that this is a huge deal. And some of our companies are like Chainalysis, which is one of our biggest unicorn and very focused on blockchain. That's one of those. At the time, it sounded like a good idea. The market seemed interesting. But like, did we know when we made the investment that Chainalysis would be such a phenomenal investment? Definitely not. And so for us, going back to your very first question, when we think about pre-seed, it's really different from later stage because you cannot look at a business plan. You cannot look at an Excel spreadsheet, run your formula and be like, yeah, that makes sense. It's just not possible. So that to me is what distinguishes pre-seed, and to some extent seed from series A, B, and why when I see VC firm going multi-stage, the first question that I ask is, are you going multi-stage with different people or are you going multi-stage with the same people? And are you going multi-stage with different investment model or are you going multi-stage with the exact investment model? And if the answer is, it's basically the same people and it's basically the same model of giving them a check and potentially sitting at their board. I'm like, yeah, you're most likely not going to be successful because you need a radically different type of support when you are backing a pre-seed entrepreneur versus a series A or a series B entrepreneur.
0: Why do you think pre-seed investing the way that you're doing it, having as many shots on goal is the right way to produce the best risk-adjusted returns at this stage?
1: Generally speaking, what we're trying to do is create an actively managed index of early stage innovation. We are scouring the world to find the best entrepreneurs, and we invest in them and support them through a very people-heavy model. We have 320 employees at Techstars, and that's because we're very hands-on and we are spending a lot of time in person with the founders that we invest in. We do that understanding that there is a very, very high uncertainty around whether or not the founder is going to be successful. And just to be clear, when they go through our program, their chances of success increase dramatically. Like a texture's portfolio company is more likely to raise money within three years than any other actuator or pre-seed investor in the world. We have 75% on average of our portfolio companies that are going to raise within three years, again, better than anyone else. And they're also going to have an exit more often than any other out there. So we do increase their chances of success. But the reason why we went the path we went around actively managed index like investment strategy is because we understand that there's so much that can happen in the life of an entrepreneur that what you need to do for your LPs is hyper diversification, which creates low volatility
0: how do lps react when you share this concept of where this actively managed index across early stage tech globally
1: this is a very interesting question i would say there's the one who gets it immediately and there is the one who still apply the vc framework to what we're trying to do. And i like, wait, no, no, no. You should be focusing. Find the, the best 20 entrepreneurs and really focus on them because this is where you're going to get your best return. And that's back to the conversation we were having earlier about what's the difference between pre-seed and later stage. And, and really, later stage starts at series A. I, I absolutely understand the scarcity approach at the series A, B. Again, when you have traction, when there is number, when you have a better sense of how to identify potential winners. I think when you look again at pre seed, you cannot know whether or not they're gonna be successful. You're gonna have indication of they're gonna have a higher chance, but you don't know for sure. The conversation we have with LPs are twofold. One, explaining to them the difference between pre-seed and VC and why. What has worked very well for VC doesn't work at pre-seed. The reality is that there are very few successful pre-seed investors. If you ask angel investors if they made money out of their angel investing, most of them will tell you that they have not. And it's basically more of a hobby than it is a job. So pre-seed investor is just very, very, very different approach. Once we explain to them the difference between the two, then we take out of our back pocket all the, the database analysis that actually show how the median return improves as you scale your pre-seed portfolio. It's very, very clear, and that's database, so there's not a lot of debate to have around it, is that you you will see that as you increase the number of position in your portfolio, assuming fixed terms, which is a very important variable, actually, the x model is based on the idea that the terms are the same for every company. Assuming standard terms for every company, you will see the median return will increase and the volatility will decrease the more you expand the number of positions. So that's the the two conversations we have with LP generally. And some of them, as I say, get it, and others do not.
0: I think that brings up an interesting point, though, which is where my mind goes with this is, one many LPs, particularly as like the name of this podcast suggests, alts going mainstream, a lot of investors can't necessarily access the top five or 10 venture funds. And many of those funds are generating and in many environments, the lion's share of returns, but those funds are hard to access for a number of reasons. Either they don't need LPs, the minimums are too high, et cetera. Then LPs may go to fund of funds Now, That brings up an interesting question in the context of fund of funds may actually be a great way for some people to access venture because, like the model that you just mentioned, it's a way to get diversified access to a large number of companies in private markets. You invest in a number of funds, the, the underlying number of companies in those funds represents a large diversified portfolio of startups across stage, across sector, across geography, maybe. And then the volatility decreases. So, how would you compare? the concept of what you're doing at Techstars to a fund of funds and do LPs think of it like that?
1: I love the question. Uh, and the reason why I love the question is because we have often talked to our LP about Techstars as the ultimate fund of fund. What we tell them is, if you're looking at developing a pre-seed strategy, based on what we've just discussed, you need to have a pretty broad portfolio. Diversification is your friend. The more position you have, the more your median return is going to increase, the lower your volatility is going to be. So if you decide to go down that path, which is, again, very different from the name that you've mentioned with the sequoia of this world, which are not really exposed to pre directly as such. If you decide to go down that road, I think you should try to have multiple GPs. You should invest in multiple pre-seed investors. Then there is the question of, at pre-seed, the average check is very small. For you to be able to deploy significant money at pre-seed, you're going to have to back a very large number of pre-seed investors. What you find is that for the capital allocators who decide to have an allocation really early stage, they end up having several GP and they have to manage them. They have to do the due diligence with them. They have to manage the relationship. They have to look at the way the returns c- come back, etc. It's pretty heavy to do especially when you have to do it, as I say, across not five, not 10, but 15, 20 different GP, and you have to arbitrage between different sectors and regions. And some of them even decide at some point to do early stage investment themselves. So lots of work. What we say to them, and obviously I'm the CEO of Techstars. My job is to explain the value of my company. But what I say to them is, why are you doing all of that? You can get the exact same hyper-diversification across industry, across geography, um, with Techstars. We have different programs, we have different managing directors who are making this decision, and then we combine all of that, but they all follow the same approach in terms of sourcing, selection, etc the terms are standards. You don't have to figure out if the terms are different and if one GP is better at negotiating than the other. You just get the output, which is this hyper diversified index like portfolio. And by the way, you can decide if you want to do direct investment, which institutional don't do, but family offices or high net worth individual are usually very interested in. Then you can decide to look at the deal flow and be like, Yeah, I would love to send me your PropTech deal flow. I'd love to look at it and I'd love to invest in it. But so to close on your question, to me, Techstars is basically the ultimate fund of fund when it comes to pre-seed.
0: How do you think price matters, if at all, at pre-seed seed? And I asked that question also with the backdrop of prices may have increased in certain parts of the seed market, Certain companies are raising more money, therefore, at higher valuations to start. Talk about the whole impact of price at seed, pre-seed and seed, and, and what you've seen in terms of the impact that's had on your portfolio at Techstars.
1: So numbers are, are moving a little bit in the second half of this year. But generally, until recently, the valuation at pre-seed level have remained within plus minus 10% of what they have been historically. So fairly stable. Again, they're starting to have some slight changes, but pre-seed has always been pretty stable and Same thing with seed. The big changes really come after. You talk about Series A and Series B, and here you're starting to see minus 30 to 40%, and then you go to growth stage, and now you're seeing minus 60% or even companies that basically have no value anymore because no one wants to back them, whatever the valuation is going to be. And so the the valuation as such at pre-seed seed seed hasn't changed that dramatically.
0: Do you think that current environment will change that? Or do you see pre-seed continuing on as it has over the past years as well?
1: I expect what I'm going to call the traditional pre-seed, and I'll explain why in a minute I I very specifically caveat my comments. I expect the traditional pre-seed to remain fairly stable in terms of valuation. Again, plus minus inflation, plus minus some hiccup in the market, but again, minus 10% on valuation is basically like a rounding error at the pre-seed level. The reason why I say traditional at the beginning is because we're not seeing that anymore, but 18 months ago, we would see later stage investor entering the pre-seed market with the valuation of a seed round, or even sometime of an A round. So the company in itself will still fit the definition of a pre-seed company. Two to 10 people, an MVP, not really any monetization yet, or very little, really, really early stage. And yet you would see later stage investor coming in and offering valuation that were completely out of whack with what a pre-seed company could, should command. And by the way, there's still pockets of that in some area, like AI being the main culprit right now, where you see companies which are very clearly pre-seed companies commending valuation, which may or may not be justified in the long term, but in the short term are very, very hard to explain. So that's what I mean. But what happened with the market, to a large extent, freezing, and venture capitalists becoming more risk adverse and their LP actually holding them much more accountable in terms of due diligence and risk profile of the investment and everything is that a lot of that behavior has disappeared and pre has come back to being really pre rather than having strangers coming from the outside and be like, yeah, let me value you at a series A level.
0: I think that's a really important Piece around pre-seed is that things don't necessarily get too expensive because otherwise, when things have been priced into a certain valuation, it almost becomes forced that you need a bigger outcome in order for success to happen. And that becomes very hard. And I think there's some other nuances there that are pretty interesting and important in that regard. I want to ask that in the context of the globalization of early stage company building and investing because Techstars has locations all over the world in different ecosystems. I think one thing that we see in various ecosystems is that as tech starts to take hold in some of these ecosystems, you start to get these networks of people who've been at successful startups and then spin out. They were early employees at a, at a top company in Europe, say it was Klarna or Spotify or, or TransferWise, or whatever it may be. And they then start their own companies. Now, how do you think something like that has impacted the quality of talent that you're starting to see in these startup hubs that are emerging? Could be in the US too, but also globally, as you think about the quality of talent coming to Techstars, where are those prospective founders or founders coming to an accelerator or because they worked at what was a branded startup, are they going and raising larger rounds at higher valuations? The,
1: the quality of tech talent, the quality of entrepreneur, as well as the quantity has increased globally, if anything, because it is much more common now to know what being an entrepreneur means and to have received some modicum of exposure to entrepreneurship. and potentially even to be connected to a few entrepreneurs, etc. cetera. In general, there's a much more experience, much more educated to what being an entrepreneur is talent-based than there was before. The ecosystem are also much more robust. There's more connective tissue. It, it used to be really that Silicon Valley was the heart. The heart, the mind, the soul, the liver, like everything for tech it's still, just to be clear, it's still a very important hub, and it still commands a premium on valuation compared to any other hub, any other tech ecosystem around the world. But it's not anymore the absolute center of tech. In the U.S., if you look at New York, New York is vibrant. The valuation gap with Silicon Valley, while still existing, has gotten smaller. There is more local investors, more VC, more mentors, more founders, more alumni, more second-time founders, more everything. And I'm just taking the example of New York because I'm based in New York. But I can basically describe the same evolution in almost every ecosystem we operate, whether it's London or Paris or Berlin in Europe, because you mentioned Europe, or whether it's Seattle, Chicago, Boston, Atlanta in the U.S. Or if you go further away and you look at Lagos in Nigeria or you look at Mexico or Brazil, the ecosystems are becoming more and more robust. Specifically in Europe, things have been changing quite dramatically. As a French person, I, I may be biased, but I've been so excited by what I've seen. When I was an entrepreneur, when I was 16, I built my first company, and I was 21 when I built the second one, like no one around me wanted to be an entrepreneur. A lot of people around me wanted to be civil servant. They wanted to go and work for the government. That was the secured past. That was the prestigious one. And when I built these businesses, people to a large extent in my environment were looking at me like I was crazy. Fast forward 20 years later, I go to Paris and I talk to young people. God, that makes me feel old. I talk to young people and almost every one of them wants to be an entrepreneur and they have ideas. And you look at what the government has done to support innovation. It's called French Tech. They created a whole program and and they have funding associated with it. I think it's pretty remarkable. I'm not saying this is the solution to everything and then that's it. The gap is closed with Silicon Valley. But... I've seen that happening across Europe where government corporation have been supporting more and more the European tech scenes. We have a partner uh, called ABN Amro in Amsterdam. They are investing heavily in startups because they understand that this is critically important to their own business growth, their ability to innovate. And they're just one name among many. I'm seeing Europe becoming a major innovation hub for a lot of things, starting from health tech and climate change to the future of mobility and fintech. To me, it's both a good news and a bad news. I think the the good and bad news is that we went from a hyper-centralized tech system that was really only coming out from Silicon Valley to a world which has multiple hubs all around the world. The good news is having innovation everywhere in the world and having diversity in terms of source of innovation is amazing. We are gonna get faster to all this innovation because we have multiple hubs. The less good thing is that it creates more fragmentation. There is an increasing conversation about the return of the Cold War, including in tech with an internet that is completely fragmented. So it's not all perfect. But I think all in all, having multiple hubs of innovation around the world is an amazing news. And we should all be celebrating it very heavily, including the people in Silicon Valley.
0: I think one thing there that's also really interesting when you think about multiple innovation hubs, different ideas bubbling up. When pre-seed and seed are priced into perfection... And what I'm talking about there to put numbers to it is when you're seeing seed rounds that are 20, 30 million pre-money, post-money, it becomes very hard to have an outcome. There's very little margin for error to become a billion dollar business. And that's the only way there's success. Generally, pre-seed works when it's non-consensus and right. What do you think in today's world is non-consensus and right at pre-seed? Because I think people think AI is going to be big, and maybe it will be, but if it's priced to perfection, $30 million pre-monies for pre-seed seed, seed, you have to have a billion-dollar outcome for that to be successful, whereas pre-seed investors can do very well if they're investing at sub-$10 million pre-money. The
1: tech investment world, operates through FOMO. At one point, everybody was super excited about crypto and then, oops, we were not excited about crypto anymore. And then everybody got excited about health tech and, oops, we're not excited anymore about health tech. Actually, I shouldn't say we because tech stars actually sit outside of that. And it's always very fascinating to us because of the index-like approach that I mentioned before. We really look at every vertical and we try to provide a balanced portfolio and we try to edge our bets across different verticals. Uh, but it's been fascinating to us as we're sending the deal flow to the VC industry to see the appetite changing and sometimes changing quite rapidly. So to answer more directly your question, I think if you had asked me that question about a year ago, I would have told you what was widely underinvested and not well-priced was everything related to space, defense, military, cybersecurity. The war in Ukraine changed that. People started realizing that there is, one, a need for innovation, and two, some pretty darn good entrepreneurs in that area, and three, some pretty substantial government contracts and non-governmental contracts uh, that meant big market, big money. So 12 months ago, that would have been my answer. 18 months ago, everybody was looking at Crypto blockchain. I would tell you today that I think blockchain continues to be a very, very interesting technology for the future of the internet that is at the core of identification in the future. I think it's out of fashion right now, and there are some amazing companies that are being built. On the basis of a blockchain technology, and they're not valued where they should be valued, in my opinion, when you look at their Series A around. It is very difficult right now, if you're a blockchain based company, to go and raise money. That should be course corrected at some point. Oh, here's an interesting one food tech and agrotech. All of this area, we've been investing in them for well over a decade, sometimes more. If you talked about food tech and agrotech four years ago, People would look at you with big eyes like, what are you talking about? You would mostly end up with a conversation around supply chain and how making sure that you don't waste food is great, this type of stuff. Then COVID happened and the war in Ukraine happened and supply chain got heavily disturbed. And suddenly the West, because I'm really talking about the Western world who had not experienced a lack of food or a disruption in the food supply since World War II. My my grandparents knew what food shortage was. My parents didn't, and I certainly had no idea what that was. Suddenly, that started happening, and the West started realizing that maybe, just maybe, food security wasn't as secure as they thought it was. We kept pushing our deal flow of food tech and agrotech to venture, and suddenly... Venture capitalists were a lot more interested. And then, I don't know, their their interest probably changed. They moved to something else. And then it becomes less sexy, less interesting, because I guess we all got food back on our table and the supermarkets and were full again. And so then they lost interest. But that's interesting to me because I think agrotech and food tech remains an incredibly important pool of needed innovation. I think there's great entrepreneur. There is a massive market all around the globe. It touches every single human being on the planet. And so I think this is a vertical, this is an industry right now that doesn't get the attention and the valuation that it deserves.
0: Is Techstars a leading indicator for what might be non-consensus and possibly right in the future?
1: If you have access to our data, yes. (laughs) Because we see the applications, we see what the entrepreneur crowd is working on. We knew about blockchain and crypto way before anyone really was talking about it in the media, let alone Joe on the street. We see a lot of what's coming way before the vast majority of people, including venture capitalists, because we're so much early stage. Then we also see when they graduate from our program and they go and fundraise, we also see the appetite of venture because we work with thousands and thousands of investors who've made investment in our portfolio companies. Well well over 10,000 investors have made investment in Texture's portfolio companies. So we see what is the deal flow that gets them really excited versus the one that isn't. We absolutely see the trends, but that's all internal data. So yes, if you're an LP in Techstars, you actually do have a pretty good idea about what's going on in the market.
0: I think that's a fascinating segue into a question I, I like to ask every guest on Alco's Mainstream, which is, what is your most interesting or favorite alternative investment?
1: Oh. Besides the one I'm invested in?
0: <laughs> Could be the ones you're invested in.
1: The tech stars is for me the ultimate alternative investment. And obviously that's where I focus. I'm, I'm going to take your question of what would you invest in? And I mean money and time besides tech stars. <laughs> I don't know if that was the question you, you were asking, but that's the question I'm going to answer. I think that, that the, the best return on investment come from the time you spend with the people around you. And it can be your family, it can be your friend, it can be entrepreneurs, it it can be anything or anyone. But I think the best return you get, whether it's happiness, health, success, whatever you define success like, they come from investing more time and more money in the people around you. So that would be my investment in alternative assets.
0: That's a great way to to wrap this podcast up because I think that encapsulates what TechStars is, which is helping people build businesses. And to do that, you need to back people. You have to have a network of people globally, both those who are building TechStars at the managing director level and those who support TechStars beyond the venture funds, the angels, the, the mentors, etc. And that's what helps build a company. So I think that's a fascinating way to wrap up this podcast. So. Thanks, Mel, for ha- coming on to Alt Goes Mainstream.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about Alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at at Michael Sidgemore and at alt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going